recording now. What next? Got my notes set up. It's a whole process, y'all. So complicated. I'm so extra. So extra. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. You won't leave? You promise? Well, I knew Ronnie was not here for a reason. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good to see y'all this morning. Best time of the year, right? Uh, so today's message is going to be about a little about Christmas. That's why we read from Luke 2 earlier. I just want to thank y'all, though, for letting, I said my first sermon, how could y'all let some 21-year-old who'd never been to Bible school or or who's really not the most intelligent come up here and preach to you on things you probably already know about and things you should be probably preaching to me, but kind of the role reversal is interesting, but thank y'all. y'all. I brag on y'all so much. Y'all have no idea how much I brag on y'all. I really do. People, I'll be like, yeah, it's a little church, about 40 people. I said, you know, the singing's not like the 1,500 people at AM Church, but I said, I wouldn't trade these people for anything else in the world. Y'all are like that. Y'all show, y'all show other people up. I'm serious. These two right here, too. Butch and Linda. My surrogate grandparents who adopted me, so. Yes, it's ma'am. Brownie points right there. She's cooking me. That's a, that's a pie right there. Sure. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Into the sermon. All right. We've looked at the family tree of Jesus during this Advent season that runs from about December 23rd till Christmas Day. And so I said last week that the Advent season is kind of like an airplane runway. You know, the airplane gets its engine going and gets started, makes a couple laps around the airstrip, getting heated up before it takes off. And that's kind of what the entire Old Testament is about. And that's really everything leading up to Jesus. All of human history is this great advent of this great moment, which is Jesus' birth. And if you notice in the family tree of Jesus, like I said last week, it's a long buildup, and it's it's not flawless, right? And it's not as pretty as it should look, which is really interesting because the Bible is just plain not pretty. Um, and the truth about the advent of Jesus Christ is that it's not a flawless perfect story. Well, it is a perfect story, but it's not flawless at the same time. It's really interesting. It's quite the opposite. It's 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 a good story, but it's it's full of good, bad, and ugly, which we've looked at the last few weeks. It's full of prostitutes and, and pimps and slaves and betrayals and adulterers and murderers and the religious and the irreligious and the pious kings and the pagan kings. But if you look at it all together, there's something that you notice about God, and you notice he is he is sovereign and he's very powerful and he works through everything and it shows that he's not distant, but he is totally existent and he's close to us. And he's very real, he's very present in the course of human history. In fact, human history is really his story, right? History is his story. And the beautiful thing about God is that he uses good, bad, and ugly life to work out everything. And ultimately, the ultimate good that he works out is Jesus Christ. When he comes into our lives, the lives of everybody else, and as we look at today, to the world itself. So today, what is the Advent about? What does the Advent tell us about Jesus Christ? What does it tell us about us? And what does it tell us about God? That's what I want to look at today. We're going to be in Luke 2, and our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. 1 through 14. 14 verses. If we can all read together. And if I can get my slides, like I said, I don't. I'm so bad at writing my own slides. Luke 2, verses 1 through 14. This is the word of God, and it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration from Quirinius, who was governor of Syria. 
and all went to who all who went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she wrapped her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by the night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I am bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in a swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God, which is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that we, the servant of God, may be fully equipped for every good work. We thank you for the men and the women who have kept your word, who have faithfully written out your word under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and the people even after them who have preserved this good book for us, this perfect book that, like I said, Lord, is all we need for a godly to live a godly life. Thank you for it, God. Open our hearts to the word, mine as well, Lord, and let the Spirit speak, of course. Let God's word speak. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Luke 2 begins as a historical account, and it's fitting into this narrative of Jesus of Nazareth. And I want to kind of go ahead and tell you the purpose of a genealogy, because we've kind of been looking at that. Here's a few names in that genealogy. There's a reason these genealogies exist in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3. And it's because Jews knew and they kept their traditions and their history very, very close to them. And they writ they wrote all about it. It was both oral, orally expressed and expressed through writing. And uh, Luke, though he was a Gentile, by the way, is seeking to prove that Jesus is who he said in accordance with the validation of the Old Testament. And it's kind of like this. The genealogy is like this. And kind of the gospel who is talking about Jesus is a lot like this right here. Do you know what this is? This is a passport. Who has, who has a passport? Cool. A lot of people. A lot of people. Why do you need a passport? To go to another country, right? How do you get one? A lot of things. A lot of things. It's actually a really tough process. And so what I had to do last year was I had to give a birth certificate. I had to give a photo ID. I had to give a picture of myself. And I had to give all these other documents to the government that I did not want to give to the government. It was much more than I should have needed to give. And the passport, and really, it's really the process of getting a passport, ultimately validates my identity and who I am. So that's kind of what the Luke 3 genealogy is like. That's really what Luke 2 is like. That's what the entire gospel account of Luke is about. It's meant to validate Jesus Christ. Um, and just before the genealogy, and before Luke gets into the meat of the story of Jesus, Luke begins with mentioning another record of validation. You may see it in the beginning. It's a census, right? So it's really interesting. He starts with a census. He talks about an actual historical event with real historical characters, because this is what? It's a real historic account of a real person who died, who was buried, and who rose from the dead, right? And so Luke 
does not write this passage in the form of allegory or fiction or fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. He writes it very historically. I want you to know that. And he paints this picture of Jesus, and he mentions that he was born in this time period, really of, like I said, I cannot do these slides, in the time period of Augustus Caesar, or Octavian, before he was crowned emperor. He was the nephew, and he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And in this time period, I want you to understand the context, because the context of the time period matters. Rome has just finished decades long of war, bloody, brutal fighting that has just ravaged the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean, all the area around the Mediterranean Sea. And Octavian comes to power when he defeats, who was his co-worker in the restoration of Rome, Mark Anthony. He actually defeats him, the rival for his throne. And I like what this, this is a long little commentary piece from a, from a, per, a commentator, a theologian, ultimately talking about how Jesus Christ was born into the certain time period. In the certain time period, it says this. It said, the lusty peninsula was worn out with 20 years of civil war. Its farms had been neglected, its towns had been sacked or besieged, much of its wealth had been stolen or destroyed. Administration and protection had broken down. Robbers made every street unsafe at night. Highwaymen roamed the roads, kidnapped travelers, and sold them into slavery. Trade diminished, investment stood still, interest rates soared, property values fell, and morals which had been loosened by riches and luxury had not been improved by the destitution and chaos. For few conditions are more demoralizing than poverty, that comes after wealth. And Rome was full of men who had lost their economic footing and their moral stability, soldiers who had tasted adventure and had learned to kill, citizens who had seen their savings consumed in the taxes and the inflation of war and waited vacuously for some returning tide to lift them back to influence, women dizzy with freedom, multiplying divorces, abortions, and adulteries. Why well, that sound a lot like today? I, I kind of read that. I said, I was like, wait, who, what time period are we reading around? Well, it sounds a lot, Rome sounds a lot like where we are in the state of this time. And so I think that's interesting. I think that that, that is very applicable to us. But the God-man, Jesus, comes in this time of incredible strife and incredible confusion and ethical dilution, striking similarities to today, fascinatingly enough. And as during this time, and as historically noted, that Octavian came to power and brought this, this sort of tranquility, this sort of peace, all right? He defeated his rivals, he ruled with great administrative and political skill, and he made Rome very wealthy. And he named himself emperor, and he actually applied to himself divinity. He said, I am a son of God. He said, I am God, which is very interesting because what is the, the Bible says that Jesus came just at the right time. He came just at the right time when it was easiest for people to understand who Jesus Christ was. It's very interesting. And so in other words, Augustus Caesar, who brought this peace and this tranquility back to the Roman Empire, was the savior of the Roman world right? He brought peace, and he brought peace through strength, and through wealth, and through brutality, and through war, and he brought it by blood. Now, step down from the boring history lecture, <laughs> or step down from the throne and enter a manger. Uh, because of the census order that Augustus Caesar actually issued is the reason that Jesus Christ was actually born in Bethlehem. Did you know it? God worked through the emperor to do that. He ordered a census, and because he ordered that census, the family had to travel to go and register. And on their way to register, they had to stop at Bethlehem to give birth to Jesus. It's very interesting. I said, God works through the pagan kings too. Um, and what's funny about this is, although Augustus Caesar was born into wealth and to great royalty, Jesus Christ was not born into wealth, he was not born into strength, but he was born into poverty and weakness. It's not pretty, but it is perfect. 
because the advent and the arrival and the appearance of God in flesh is to bring something that's much more good and much more powerful than a king who rules over his people as a, as, as a tyrant. And I want to ask this. If the advent is true, if Jesus Christ did come, what does that mean for Mary and Joseph? We're going to look at them. What does it mean for you and me? What does it mean for the entire world and what is brought to us? We sang it right before the sermon. Thank you, Charlie. I didn't even plan this. Charlie had it ready to go and I was going to ask him to sing this song. But it was written by Charles Wesley in the 18th century. It's a song, Hark the Air, Herald Angels Sing. What's the first verse says? It says, Peace on earth and... No. <laughs> Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, right? Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So I guess we just sang the wrong verse right there. I don't know. So the, so the Advent is not this frou-frou, pretty, perfect moment, but it is still an Advent of peace nevertheless. And I want to keep in, that, keep in your mind that word peace. Keep that in mind. And keeping that in mind, let's ask three questions like we have been the last week to help us guide, guide ourselves through the Scripture. And that is, what is the bad, what is the ugly, and what is the good? And so, what is the bad? And I really want to replace the word bad because it's not bad at all. I mean, but it's just a tough reality. And so I'll say, what is the harsh reality? We'll keep that question. Uh, and keep the, the word peace in your mind. Because the advent of Christ brings peace. That's what the scripture says. I want to ask, is that true? Because when we ask this tough reality, we need to ask what peace is not. What is the, Christ, what is the peace Christ brings? What is it not? Let's look at that. And the, priest, the, peace, priest, the peace Christ talks of is much different than what the world sees it as. We already looked at the Roman worldview of peace. And we need to understand the societal context of Christ's advent, right? And more, we need to look at our own societal context to see what is the peace that affects us. Is it the same? Is it different? And so what does our world see as peace? It's actually similar to the Roman view of peace. So an obvious one is an end to war, an end to hostility, this nation against nation. Right now, in the time period that we've had in the last 100 years, we've had two world wars. Some people think we're on the verge of a third world war. We have the nation of Israel versus the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas. We have Russia versus Ukraine. We have rebellions and coups and civil wars everywhere, and it has been that way for human history. And there are genocides, even within your lifetime, you've seen genocides on entire people groups and tribes and cultures. Another person may say, well, peace would be an end to drought, to famine, and to hunger, and to poverty. Right now in this world, we have entire nations without food, without water, without clothing, without housing. There are more nations in this world that are in a state of economic devastation than there are nations who are in a, in a sense of economic stability. There are more nations with starving people in this world than there are nations with fed people. In fact, way more nations with starving people than fed people. Or another, in our country, it may mean an end to corporate corruption, corruption or those crooked politicians or the division and the racism, the abortion, you name it. I'm all for those things. Or maybe peace is that either the Democrats or the Republicans will take control of the government. Or maybe it's that peace is an end to depression or being happy. Maybe it's for you to be loved, for you to get rich, to be powerful. Maybe that's peace for you. But the truth of the peace that Christ brings actually has no direct relation to those things. It may have an indirect relation to those things, but not directly. And I'm most certainly not saying that the power of the gospel cannot end wars, change hearts, capture, capture our nations, and rise, raise up godly politicians, that it can't feed the hungry, or that it can't bridge division. Of course it can. I think it will. I think that's the mission of Jesus. But believe it or not, the peace that comes in this Advent is much bigger than that, which is crazy. How could something be even bigger than that? And so knowing what the peace is not, we can answer what is the harsh reality. And the harsh reality is this. 
is that the advent of Jesus Christ actually brings conflict and pain and it brings disturbance. It brings disturbance. That's the tough reality. Jesus Christ said in Luke 12, he said this, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Just fascinating because Luke 2 says otherwise. But he says, I tell you, I bring division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. Who were the first people? Who were the first people to experience this disturbance by the advent of Jesus Christ? How about the one who actually physically advented him in the world, right? His mother and his own father. Mary and Joseph, the inhabitants of Nazareth, a poor town, were both descendants of David. And they were very young. There's no reason to believe that Mary was not any older than 15 years old, which is fascinating. And I want you to think about it. Two people who are betrothed, who are engaged, who are soon to marry, they're pledged to marry, but they're not married. And imagine this 15-year-old girl gets pregnant. Do you know what that means in that societal context? Do you know the disturbance that that brings into both Joseph and Mary's life? For Joseph, it's shame to his family because guess what happened? Either he did it and he's in trouble, or someone else took his engaged woman and slept with her. Looks really bad. For Mary, it means potential death penalty for committing adultery, along with the shame she gets rejection from her family, from her synagogue, from her town. The baby bump brings disturbance for her, okay? I'll say that. That's, 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 my, that's my slang version of trying to say this, make you understand it. So what does the arrival and the advent of Jesus Christ bring into their lives? It brings division, it brings conflict, it brings disturbance, and it brings change. Everything changes now. It does not bring peace, but incredible hardship. It brings uncomfortability. It brings shame. It brings reproach. And it's not supposed to be easy. Uh, Jesus said later in the book of Luke, he says, whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. Who do you think the first cross-carrying disciples of Jesus were? We like to think about the 12, but I wonder if it wasn't Joseph and Mary. They were the first to actually have to give up something for Jesus Christ to be in their lives. They had to give up everything for it. What is the harsh reality about peace? It's that peace is not an end to war or hostility. Jesus is not born to end hunger or famine or political unrest. In fact, Jesus says those things will continue and they will actually increase up until his second coming. The, G the advent of Jesus Christ, like I said, brings disturbance into their lives. And it brings disturbance into our lives too. Because world peace, I want you to listen to this. Think this is true even with the gospel. World peace is relative and subjective. Internal peace is relative and subjective, and relational peace is relative and subjective. And I think all those things can be influenced by having Jesus Christ in our lives. I think they can all be changed for the better. But I want to tell you, the only objective concrete reality, reality is that there's only one kind of object, objective concrete peace. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to what is this total peace. And to get there, I have to ask the next question to help you understand why you need total peace. Because I'm not going to offer you the gospel. I'm not going to tell you the peace without the other part, which is reveals to you why you need it. And the next question is this. It's what is the ugly? We've been working through these questions. last. And I've noticed, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. You can frame any sermon around these three questions. I think that's really, so we may, we may do that the rest of the time here. But no, nah, I, won't, I won't put you through that. What is the ugly? Or to phrase another way, what is the harsh reality for you? And keep in mind peace. Why do we need peace? Who do we need peace with? How do we get the peace? Because clearly the wars are terrible. There's dying babies. It's terrible. There's famine. There's calamity. We need peace in those areas, of course. But there is a greater, 
more infinite peace that triumphs all of those, and we need it. I'll tell you why. In verse 10 and 11 of Luke 2, it says, The angel that came to them said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why do we need not fear? Why do we need the good news and joy? Why do I need a Savior? Why do I need a Savior? What do I need a Savior from? What do I need in a Lord and a King? And you know why, and I wish... I hope there's maybe some people who are asking why. And I'd like to give you the answer because I think most of us already know why. And I'll answer regardless, though. Verse 10 talks about good news. What is the Greek word for good news? Gospel. It's the word gospel. And a gospel, what it was in the Roman world, was this proclamation of a great victory, of a triumph. Someone won something. It was something that people needed to hear. And usually it was about peace. We talked about Caesar earlier, and and, and Ray's been doing it in his his, his video series about this character of Caesar and this this, this gospel news. Uh, anyways, let me connect to what I talked about earlier. We have Caesar, we have Augustus, we have Octavian, who went off to war and he won. So what happened after Octavius won the great battle and he crowned himself emperor is the messenger from his encampment would run back to Rome and would say, we have won. Peace has come, the king reigns, right? It's the same way with us. We have to ask, why do we need a savior? Why do we need a king? Why do we need a Lord? Why do we need a God? What is the peace that we need? What is the war that needs to be ended? And to answer that, I will answer to you, what is the ugly? Because the world isn't so ugly as much as we are ugly. There's something wrong with us. We need the peace directly in us. And the only reason there's a cure is because we have a disease, right? We're all lost. We're all hopeless. We are peaceless. Or instead of a cure, I'm ready for this, instead of a cure and for the sake of Christmas, We'll look at it in a humorous way. You're going to like this. <laughs> we recognize Christ as a cure. And we should recognize Christ at Christmas as the greatest gift that we can receive, right? So picture this. Do you know what a Christmas gift carries? A Christmas gift carries a message. You ever thought about that? A Christmas gift carries a message. It represents what we like. It represents our hobbies and our interests. It represents our wants. And sometimes it represents our needs. Focus on these. And so I asked my mom for books and clothes and an Apple Watch because those are things I want or those are things I need. She's likely just going to give me more underwear and socks because of those things I need. Don't you start laughing. I'm about to get y'all. Focus on the men in this room. You tell your wife what you want for Christmas. But oftentimes she does not get you what you want. She gets you what you need. All right. Well, let's look under the tree and let's start opening. First gift you start unwrapping. Start unwrapping is this big industrial-sized case of deodorant from Sam's Club that will last you for the next year. The second gift you unwrap is this pile of magazines, and it says how to lose 50 pounds through diet and exercise. Then you get to the third gift, and it's this book. It says, uh, this is a real book, by the way, Atomic Habits, How to Build Self-Discipline, How to Get Prosperous, or how to, how to Get More Fit, More Active. What's the clear message of those gifts? We think a clear message of those gifts is, Butch. <laughs> the message is that you stink, you are fat, and that you're lazy. All right? That's the message those Christmas gifts bring. So let me flip back to the real Christmas gift, which is Christ. The message is not that you stink, that you are fat, or that you're lazy. The message is that you are ugly, that you are dead, and that you are at war with God, and that you need reconciliation. And that you need peace. 
Why do you need a Savior? Why do you need a King? Why do you need a Lord? Why do you need a God? The only reason to understand that, the only reason to understand the good news of this messenger, which the angel brings to Mary and Joseph and brings to you and brings to the shepherds, is for you to understand the bad news that exists. Romans 8 says that those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. And so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Listen to this, verse 7. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. Sum that up in one word, war. Or sum it up in another word, rebellion. And it's not just you and God. It's not you individually. It's our entire human race. It's the descendants of Adam. We're born that way. We're born as enemies to God. That's just who we are. That's what I want you to know. So do you understand what the gift and the incarnation of Jesus Christ means? Do you know what God coming into our world, into our likeness means? Do you know the implications of that? What is that saying about you? It's saying that I am the ugly. And the advent of Jesus Christ tells us that we are terribly hideous creatures. We are at war, we are peaceless, and we are actually a source of earth's peacelessness. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is peace. The gift of God is unity and communion with God. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift is Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus Christ comes in swaddling clothes. He comes wrapped in his own tissue, in his own gift box, and he's presented to the world. And it's presented to Mary and Joseph. And Mary and Joseph knew the same truth. They realized the purpose of the Advent. The magnificent, incredible song that Mary sings after her, hearing the news that her son is being born. He's the Savior of the world. She says this in verse 46. She sings this in verse 46. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She rejoices in God, my what? My Savior. Is Mary infallible? Is Mary sinless? There are some who think so, but it's not true. As wonderful as she is, she is not infallible. She's not sinless. Otherwise, why would she say, my Savior? Why would she say, my God? Why would she say, my humble state? If she wasn't needing the same exact thing that we needed and that the rest of the world needed, which was the peace that only God could give. And it's the peace that she brought into the world through herself to her, and to all of mankind, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. So thank God for it. So we know the ugly, right? What's the ugly? Answer me. We're ugly, right? The Christmas gift tells us something about ourselves. So now let's ask, what is the good? What is the good? All right. Let's just read the good. How about verses 13 and 14? It says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And this, this picture says peace on earth from God, but what this really means is peace to earth from God. It's like a, it's not the white flag of retreat, but it's the negotiation sent to the other army, sent to the other commander, sent to the enemy. That's what's going on here. Not peace on earth, but peace to earth is what God is saying. He says, my favor and my salvation, my reconciliation, my eternal peace it's coming to the earth. It is coming to you. It goes from ill will to good will. I like what Tim Keller said. He said, it's not peace in us, 
that he brings. It's not peace between us that he brings. That's not the goal. He says, really, the main goal is between God and us. It's that simple. In chapter 1, Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist and the uncle of Jesus, actually prophesies about this peace. And he, in the peacemaker, and he says this, and he says, And you, my child, and talking about John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the what? Into the path of peace. Wow. The peace of God is the cancellation of a charge. It's the cancellation of a debt. And it's not by man's doing, but it's purely by God's doing. Did we advent Jesus Christ into the world? No. God invented himself into our world, into our broken, dirty, rotten world. Hark the herald angels sing. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. We were at pull, we were at war, but now peace has come. How did peace come? Did it come in the form of Augustus Caesar? Did it come in the form of a great army of a conquering general? Did it come? It came in the forgiveness of sins, of eternal life and reconciliation. It came as a baby. As a child, why couldn't God just step down as a fully formed man, as a great conquering general? Why didn't he do it? Why does he come as the weakest, most vulnerable thing possible, as a child, as a newborn baby? Why does peace come as a man? Why does it come as a babe? We want to understand the good. Why does Christ come physically? Why is the king of kings born into a manger? And really, in case you didn't know, a manger was not some stable. It was actually a cave. Jesus Christ was born into a dark cave. Why does he come like that? Because every other kind of victory, every kind of other peace, every kind of salvation of the world comes by the sword. That's what the world says. It comes by war. It comes by peace through strength or peace through power. It comes through military might, political savvy, and coercive riches through bribing. And so Augustus wins the great battle. Caesar brings the good news of peace that spreads through Rome. But what is the truth of that gospel? And what is the truth of any other gospel? The truth of any other gospel but the gospel of humility, which is our gospel, is that such peace never lasts, does it? It never changes the world for good. It never changes hearts. It never fixes people. It can never save a soul. It can never bring a new birth. And it can never end the greatest war that is going on between the Creator and His creation. There's a reason that the Son of God, the Savior, the King, the Lord, the God of the world, who comes incarnate, the incarnation, He does not come as a conquering general. You want to know why He doesn't do that? What do you learn from everybody else? Because that does not work. It doesn't work. War does not work. What is the only other way? Humility, vulnerability, and poverty. Doesn't make any sense to you. It doesn't make any sense to the rest of the world. No wonder they don't want to believe us. Because foolishness makes no sense to the foolish. And selfishness or unselfishness makes no sense to the selfish. Rich cannot understand poor, but God says this is the only way. And so enter Jesus Christ, God born as a man into a fallen world, into a cave, into a penniless family, into a town that no one even knows about, that no one even cares about. And he's born into a people who are trodden over constantly by the surrounding nations around them, ruled over by an oppressive tyrant. What can we learn about humility? What can we learn about Christ's humility, God's humility? Is that first, peace can only come from God by God and through God. And second, that peace can only come if God makes himself 
into the same being as those he wants to save. God has to become a man. God has to become the perfect, beautiful man that we can never live to up, live to be up to. In order for the enemy to forgiven, he must do what first? He must do what the enemy could not do. And what does he do? What is the good news? What is the good news that's brought to us in the Old Testament? What's the good news brought to us by Luke in the New Testament? What is the message of victory that conquers the world empire? Isaiah 53. I want to go to the Old Testament for this because it makes perfect sense. We'll get there. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty and he had no majesty to attract us to himself. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It's not the great illustrious Christmas present that we would expect. It's not the conquering general. It says actually he was despised and he was rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Peace on earth. Mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. It only happens when God becomes a man. It only happens when God becomes poor. Who steps down from heaven. Who steps down from the throne. Who steps down from the great kingdom. And he steps down into the domain of darkness and becomes a man. doesn't make any sense. He becomes penniless. He becomes persecuted. He becomes despised and rejected. And he's not raised up to a throne. The only throne Christ ever raised up to on this earth until he comes again was a cross. To be killed. Peace on earth to whom his favor rests. Jesus Christ on the cross accomplished that peace for you. Because you want to know what happened on the cross? How was peace accomplished on the cross? It's because one, Jesus Christ took your sins on himself. And number two, he experienced the war of God. He experienced the peacelessness that God had to bring to a sinner. Because he became as sin for you so that you could become as his righteousness. The great trade-off. He gets my sin, I get his righteousness, and that's how peace is accomplished. Only because God becomes a man and he bears the punishment that we deserve. Makes no sense to the rest of the world. He bore your ugly and he died. God in flesh died and he died as nothing, as nothing, as poor. And in humility, hanging by his flesh from the wood, he was covered in feces, he was covered in spit, he was covered in sweat, and he was covered in blood. Not liking, looking like any other king I've ever seen. It's funny that his defeat, or his apparent defeat, is actually what won us the victory. It's what won him the victory. It makes no sense. It's this upside-down kingdom. It's this upside-down king. It makes no sense. But that's how it happens. That doesn't look like the other king's victories, does it? And the other kings don't rise from the dead either, though. So I'll say that. But that is how ultimate peace is accomplished. Because what God... Or what man meant for evil, God meant for good. We looked at two weeks ago. And what is the good? Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. The debt is paid. The cancellation of the debt has happened because Christ bore your debt. 
and the punishment was upon him that should have been upon you. That's how peace is accomplished. It's not that peace was just forgiven. It wasn't just forgiven right off the bat. God couldn't just do that because God is just. He had to put his wrath on something, and that was himself, God in flesh, the Son. That's humility. And humility for you, though, because you have to have humility, too, to come to God. The humility is that you die to yourself, that you're buried, and that you're raised with him. And really, if you don't know how to do that, the grand thing about that is that you really don't do that. Baptism, but what happens in baptism is God does all the work. And so if you don't know how to do it, just ask him to. Say, I'll do what you said, what you said simply. And that's the miracle of the new birth is that it brings peace between God and us. It may not bring us this internal peace. It may not get rid of your depression. It could. It may not get rid of your poverty. It could. Doubt it. And it may not get rid of the rest of the world's problems. One day it will. But really the peace that you need is between you and God. And I want you to remember that, even if you are a Christian. And so the arrival of Jesus Christ is not what the arrival of any other king looks like. The Bible says it's not pretty. And the buildup is not pretty. The arrival works through ugly people, bad people, and good people. It works through prostitutes and pimps and slaves and betrayers, adulterers and murderous kings like we looked at last week. And it works through poor virgins and penniless carpenters. And it even worked through a pagan empire emperor who ordered a census. And that's how Christ was advented into a cave. It's right in our text. And the continual advent of Jesus Christ works through you too. But know this. Let me sum it up. The advent of Jesus Christ will bring disturbance into your life. If he is really born into your life, it will bring shame and it will bring a sword. It may not mean actual death, but it will mean death to desires. And it won't be easy. It will make your life messy. But he uses this disturbance for good. Number two is that the advent of Jesus Christ into your life will show you just how messy you are. The greatest Christmas gift of all shows us what we really need most of all, right? But he uses the ugly. And third is that the advent of Jesus Christ into our lives accomplishes what we need most, and that is peace to the soul and an end to hostility. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's total peace. And he uses the peace. I've quoted this from a favorite preacher of mine before. We are more sinful and we are more flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's peace. We don't deserve it. He gives it anyway if you just ask. So now what do I ask? What does God ask? You bear the message of Advent too. Did you know that? How is Jesus Christ Advented in everyone else's life in this world? You want this life to be, you want this world to be fixed? Get busy. Bring that message to everybody else. Share it with everyone else in truth and love. The best Christmas gift you can give to everyone else around you this Christmas is the Christmas gift of a person whom you have already received, right? So let's pray. So our Father God, we thank you for a beautiful day, Lord. You have made the sun, you have made the sky, you have set everything in its proper order, Lord, and you have done so much for us, even in this world, God. And we realize, Lord, that we only have one chance um, to be reconciled and at peace with God, God, and that is in this life. The good thing is, Lord, you give us time, and you're patient, and you're just, and you're merciful, and you say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, Lord. And the rest is peace between us and between you. We thank you for every good gift. And help us to remember this Christmas that it's not even always about family. It's not always about friends. It can be. It's only about the one who adopted us into his family, into our greatest friend, which is Jesus Christ, who gives us peace. 
But I thank you for him. I thank you that he bore our punishment for us, that we may have solitude and that we may have grace and we have, may have mercy and reconciliation. Lord, not just reconciliation and forgiveness of sins, but actual tangible, heartfelt relationship with you, God. We haste the day that that shall be made completely 100% full. And we haste the one who comes to bring it in the second advent. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.